This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend and colleague, Jill Brown, as we chat about the components about what makes Scottish cashmere so special, why it's loved by people all around the globe, and why every design house has a Scottish mill in their little black book. In this section, I want to discuss the Holy Trinity. Three components collide when Scottish cashmere is created, ensuring its superior softness. They are the goat, the water, and the artisan. The glorious goat. The story of Scottish cashmere starts thousands of miles away from its bonny shores, beginning in the semi-nomadic pastorals of China and Mongolia. High in the mountain, one of the world's finest treasures can be found on the backs of nimble-footed goats. These incredible animals are covered with long fleece, and in winter months, as temperatures tumble as low as minus 40, the goats grow a downy underfleece, so soft and so short that it's this undercoat which makes cashmere lightweight yet ludicrously warm. As spring arrives to melt away the snow, the goats begin to molt. Herdsmen and their families start the painstaking task of combing the precious underfleece from their herd. The combing season lasts three to four weeks, producing small amounts per goat. It is from here that the fleece makes its way to Scotland to undertake its transformation. It's in the water. The marriage between Mongolian mountain goat and soft Scottish water is what makes Scottish cashmere the best in the world. If you think about it, processing one of the finest natural fibres on the planet with incredible water can only lead to uncompromised quality. It is the same water that has made the Scottish whisky industry inimitable. So too, Scottish cashmere has become a symbol of luxury and excellence due to the country's rich natural resource. The best fibres born out of the most extreme winter conditions in Mongolia are plunged into geologically gorgeous gallons of soft Scottish water up to 10 times in the cashmere process before transforming into this tactile product. Couple that with over two centuries worth of knitwear expertise and it is completely comprehensible to see why every couture house has a Scottish cashmere manufacturer in their little black book. So, although it's true that you can make cashmere anywhere on earth. What makes Scottish cashmere so superior are the country's unique geographical components working together in harmony with the hair. The artisans. Since the 18th century, the tradition of weaving, warping, knitting and dyeing has been passed down from one generation of worker to the next. Through the dizzying heights of the cashmere trade in the 19th century, where over a million pieces of hosiery were being produced annually, to times of austerity when the industry declined as cheaper cashmere flooded the market, commitment to producing luxury garments that are made to last remained at the core of the Scottish textile industry. It was that commitment that resonated with designers and customers alike as we headed into the 21st century, resurrecting the sleeping giant. This artisanal intellectual property is woven into every ply, representing over 200 years of knowledge worth its weight in gold. Each craft person who handles the fabric is an expert in their field, many of them with over 25 years worth of their own time invested in the processing of cashmere. 
All of this is felt in the final product. Every element elevates the quality, creating ethereal clothing with endurance. Amazing. So we've got some goats to thank, but fundamentally it comes down to the fact that it always, it's raining now, it always rains in Scotland. <laughs> it's always teeming it down. And we are so anti the rain here, aren't we? But it has made us industry leaders. Industry leaders. And also ruined a couple of pairs of shoes of mine. Yes, I know those, you know, you see, we were just talking there about luxury and quality, but you've got an amazing story about your Prada shoes. <laughs> that must have been one of your first designer purchases. No? Yes, I, yeah, it was one of my first um, um, exp expensive pieces, but it was in the sale. Uh, I, you can you can take the, you take the girl out of Glasgow, but you can't take the Glaswegian out of her. Um, so no, it was in the sale. I bought a pair of um, gorgeous brown leather um, Prada high heels that had, um, sequin applique all around the, the the foot of it and a wee teeny peep toe and a, a, an elevated platform and I actually still have them but I bought those when we were I was 22, 23? I think yeah, 21, 22, 22 I would say um, and we're old now and yes, I loved them and was wearing them and I noticed that when I was wearing them the sequins that had been um stitched into the, the top half of the, the shoe were completely coming away and it looked like there was an odd kind of gluing issue so i took them back to harvey nichols and said hey is there anything that we can do and i kid you not the person turned around and she said you wore those shoes outside in the rain like yeah, leather shoes yes um and actually they sent them back to prada and they got them fixed and that's ah. why I, yeah, that's the that's the truth. And I've had those shoes rehealed three times because I wear them. I, I used to wear them all the time. Now that I have children, I never wear. I was just going to say that, that you and your heels like that is the biggest mark for me since you had your children. Yeah, because I don't think I actually knew how tall you were. Yeah, I'm really short, and I had no idea because I'm not really short, and I don't think I had any real idea until. I mean, even through your pregnancy with Gabriel, yeah, you were in heels. I loved a heel. And then I remember coming to see after he was born and you had like Ked plimsolls on. Yeah. And I was like, oh, things have changed. Things have changed. And why do you only come up to my chin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's rubbish. That was the big lie of my 20s that I was five foot nine. <laughs> really not. Really not. But yeah, that was that, that was my um my luxury and Scottish water ruining my Italian leather shoes. Well that's that's the lesson, isn't it? Is that Italians aren't weatherproof, aren't Scottish. <laughs> so if you have a Scottish cashmere, at least then it's got a chance against the cold and the rain. Hmm. It'll definitely keep you warm. But that's the that's the lovely thing about the story of when I was writing this for the book, the the marriage between the artisan, the goat and the water making this holy trinity is back to what the chapter said you can make cashmere anywhere in the world you can make it in china they make really brilliant cashmere in china they make amazing cashmere in italy they make some really lovely stuff in south america too but you can feel the difference because we lucked out and we live in this completely wet climate that is geographically soft and that's the component that actually makes a difference though that the water is really geographically soft and you can taste it in whiskey and you can feel it in our wool 
And you can feel it across the wools. Cashmere is obviously a really super fine um, initial product, but you feel it in, in lamb's wool and stuff like that too. So explain because there's, there's I mean, there's, there's wool and yeah. then there's cashmere, but even in cashmere, there's cashmere and there's cashmere. You know, yeah. you talk me through the geography of the goat. Okay, right, yes, okay. Well, this is, I like to um, paint a picture with a different natural resource. So if you take um, diamonds or sapphires, sapphires out of the earth, in varying stages, you will find that there are some that are not, you know, that are worth pennies, and then there are others that are worth hundreds of thousands of pounds due to clarity and, and whatever has happened um, in, in the ground. And so too is the same with cashmere. So the whole goat obviously is covered in hair, right? But the super fine stuff that is on the tummy and the chin is the top grade. That's your, you know, best clarity. But you can still make cashmere from the top and the rump and their, their head. And, you know, they, they, they need completely um, combed, obviously, to get their winter coat off. Then they are um, graded into different piles. But... The finest grade is the super downy, super, super warm fur from the, the tummy and the chin. And if you think about this, that mass on the body is very, very small. So you're only ever getting little amounts of that. And that's why it's so expensive. And that's why you can get cashmere jumpers that are, you know, 50 quid. And that's why you get some cashmere jumpers that, you know, can go up to 2,000 pounds. It's about the grade of your cashmere. But you will feel the difference. You will feel how light and how warm that grade from tummy and chin feels in comparison to what's coming off of the rest of the body. And the other thing is, is that what's nice about that, and I suppose as we talk about different qualities of cashmere at least there's no waste what kept coming up when i was writing the book was this link between the word luxury meaning much more than i thought it ever had done so taking it away from how much something cost to actually how something was being produced the time it took the expertise what goes into the whole process and that became about luxury to me and it was really, really interesting because, you know, I, I touched on it when I was reading the book that these artisans, some of them have 25 years worth of experience under their belt, right? Mm. And that goes into the whole weaving process. And that's been passed down by someone who taught them that for generations. That's over 200 years worth of knowledge. And that's only in one part of this story. Then you have to think about going back to the, you know, the joke of us being the wettest place in the whole entire world, right? But when you think about the process of how our water happens, the rain, the clouds, the coming through the rocks to sit in the locks, to then be processed through to the factories so that it can then create the raw material, you know, plunging the raw material, then so that it can be knitted. That shouldn't be something that's cheap, you know? And that's something that we should be celebrating and always. And that was something that I really adored the process of, of, of going through that couture houses understood that and still understand that better than anybody else. And the end consumer, sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't. And I think that we suffer a lot, particularly in the UK, we're pretty bad for buying a lot 
often and cheaply. And what I would really encourage in people is to just take a stand back because if you're buying something at the top end of your budget, you're not putting that in the bin. It's going nowhere. It's staying in your wardrobe, you know, because you've invested in it and you've invested in it not only with money, but you've saved up. So you've worked hard, right? You've banked that cash. Then you've looked for a product that you know that you want to stay with you. And that's really, really powerful when you think about how we stop this fashion backlash. And in 20, it was 2016 when I wrote this book, but one of the stats that came out from it was a zero waste Scotland statistic, um, which said in Scotland, so not just, not this is not a UK statistic, just in Scotland, we were binning 25 million pounds worth of textiles, putting it in the bin a year. That's not sustainable. And I'm meaning that in every sense of its word. So if we can flip the coin over and say to ourselves, I'm going to buy something at the top end of my budget, whatever that top end is, then you know that it's going to stay in your wardrobe for a lot longer. And then something comes into play, which is my cost per wear analogy. And I used to write about this in my, my style columns for the evening news, that when you buy something that's expensive and you wear it over and over and over again, whether that's you know over a decade or over 40 years, you can get that cost per wear down to pounds and even pennies. Whereas if you're buying something really cheap and you're wearing it a couple of times, that cost per wear will then sit up at that 40, 50 quid mark. But when you're buying a luxury product that you take care of, it doesn't, it, 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 it's, not saving you money. That's why I would say to people, that that's actually saving you money. I'm not, you know, that was being frivolous and silly. But actually, when you when you weigh it up, would you put that thing that you spent a lot of money on in the bin? No, you wouldn't. But are you going to get rid of that dress? That well, that's the ironic thing, isn't it? Is that actually up until very recently, the most expensive things I bought were things I wore to friends' weddings. Because heaven forbid that I wear the same thing to more, more than, than one wedding. So the cost of pair wear there is sitting at 150, 200 pounds because literally they've been worn once. And I'm quite lucky in that what I do for a living, sometimes I get to go to black tie events. So those dresses maybe get worn twice. Mm. But still, whereas what should really be happening is I should have a couple of staple dresses that can be re accessorized yeah. that go to weddings and I should buy things like and I remember thinking my brother was mad and my brother's younger than me and has definitely since his late teens early 20s always bought the most expensive jeans he could afford always mm-hmm. and he still has them now he's lucky because he's a man they still fit him but that idea that even he grasped that he would rather have had little but really good quality and it's his favourite thing to get on at his wife and me too. Yeah. I, I, if we were to talk to our grandparents or our parents' grandparents, they would be horrified at how we consume. And this isn't something that just happened, you know. I think that we think of fast fashion as being something that's very new. It's not. You know, from the 60s, we were seeing brands like Biba, which I absolutely celebrate, who were giving women the opportunity to be able to express themselves and buy clothing at really affordable, fashionable clothing at really affordable prices, right? 
But then that had a trickling effect that turned into a huge tsunami that we are now facing as a as a crisis. You know, I've just said twenty five million pounds worth of textiles just in Scotland going in the bin. I couldn't even begin to think what the national figure is for that. And somewhere you have to start taking into accountability why we think that that's okay when things cost money to make. Now, a couple of years ago, I, when I was writing the column, I did, um, I, took, I took a test. I, I put myself through a process with a designer friend of mine who's called Carolyn Baxter. And I got her to teach me how to sew because I wanted to put my money where my mouth was. I was writing about clothing, but I had no idea how to make it or, or the processes of it all. And one thing that really struck me through the whole process was we were making a, a, a t-shirt, you know, like a simple shape. And you have to um, draw out the pattern for that. But before you draw out the pattern for that, you have to obviously do your measurements. So, you know, there's standard measurements, size 10, size 12, and whatever that is in centimetres. And then you grade up your pattern. So you can, you know, you can do that on a piece of paper or a piece of cardboard, you know, you, and then you can use that pattern over and over again. So once you've drawn your pattern, that gets pushed aside, then you have to source your fabric and buy your fabric, whatever kind that you want. It could be, you know, a relatively cheap cotton or it could be a really expensive silk, whatever it is that you want, right? But you have to source that and, and bring it to you. And that comes at a cost too. And somebody's had to make that fabric, right? So you're not making that fabric from scratch. Then you cut out the pattern using the fabric and then you have to overlock it so that the threads don't disintegrate before you sew it. Now, anybody who's ever tried to sew in a straight line the first few times, it's impossible. It's really, really difficult to do that. So when you walk into a high street store or a supermarket and you see a T-shirt sitting there for a pound fifty and you think that's normal, I'm here to tell you that I've I've tried that and it's impossible. I don't know how it is achievable because there is someone sewing that. There is someone pattern cutting that. That's not industrialized. That's not done by a machine. That has to be done by a human being. And that again comes back to luxury. The luxury of time, the luxury of taking care of people in this whole chain. You know, when you're buying clothing, you're feeding the families of the people that have produced it. It shouldn't be cheap and it shouldn't be throwaway. That's it, isn't it? And I think if you need that t-shirt and that's the price point you can shop at, absolutely buy the t-shirt i think the problem is is that people like you and i are doing our tesco shop or whatever as the shop we're in this we pop into pre-mark for a look at what's available and there's something there in the sale and you buy it just because it's a pound mm -hmm. i don't need a t-shirt i've got several several t-shirts and the ones i like the most are the ones i've had the longest because yeah. they're the softest but, oh speaking of the ones that you like the most well remember that t-shirt that uh, years ago that we again that we bought, it was in a sale. Mm -hmm. But that was your first, you were, you were talking to me about one of my first designer pieces in my Prada shoes. One of your first investment pieces was a McQueen t-shirt, wasn't it? It was a very beautiful McQueen sort of, it's like an oversized vest, this amazing gray with a clown, a really terrifying McQueen clown on it with gorgeous sort of drop armpits. Mm. And it's a vest, but it's the sexiest vest in the world. <laughs> And, uh, it makes you feel amazing. Yeah, right? you put it on and you you know whenever I wear it out and I still wear it out, it's it's that magic piece you've got in your out in your wardrobe that everybody has. If you feel crap and you put it on, yeah, it makes you feel great. 
and not a night out in the what 14 15 years I've had that mm. have not not even once several people said to me and then you get the joy of saying well actually it's Alexander McQueen <laughs> but the story of this is that I actually almost didn't buy it she didn't she almost didn't buy it. we were walk, we were shopping together and I was um aggressively I wouldn't say bullyingly I was aggressively like you need to it looked amazing on her it looked looked so beautiful you know you know when your friend uh, being a stylist and a fashion writer I love that clothes can make someone feel amazing and when Jill tried this on I could see what it was doing to her it made her look incredible and feel fantastic and so for me that's a win-win that's like get that it'll be in your wardrobe forever and there's a sentimentality attached to it isn't there in that you know, it's been, I've lived all over the world. It's been with me all over the world. When I go away, you know, we were just talking before we started recording about, I went on a work trip to New York for for two weeks and I knew I would need stuff that I could dress. You know, it's been every, time, yeah. on all my adventures with me. It was right at the sort of very top of my budget as this 22-year-old radio producer in Edinburgh. And I think now if I had not taken that opportunity to buy it, because it's still in my wardrobe, still in my life, and I'm 36. Yeah. But it's that perfect example of what you just said about that cost per wear. Like, that must now be in the penny section oh, of, yeah. a, of a cost per wear. But beyond that that um, monetary cost, it's just that that feeling you get from it and what you, you feel, what it means to me having been on these adventures around the world with me. And yeah. it's, it's just something I would never not have in my wardrobe. And I can't ever think of a time where what will happen they'll have to go to somebody else I think because that's 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 the thing about luxury and that the name attached to it it becomes so much more than the item itself as well it becomes, becomes your story yeah and the you know, there's a there's a lovely saying about the the blood and sweat that has been poured into the fabric that you wear and those are real, real memories. And that that is the definition, all that time that you've invested. And yes, it's nerve-wracking to outlay, you know, a lot financially. But because of that, that's one of the reasons in the early days that you haven't given it up. You know, instead of thinking, oh, well, you know, I can just, that, that can go. Because, it, it, you know, blah, whatever, it doesn't matter. But when you invest at the top end of your budget, and you really think about a cost per wear, then it opens up into a completely different category in your wardrobe and your life. And it means that you're not doing the frivolous thing in your wardrobe. And I would really encourage that in people. And, and the cost per wear thing is a very, very real thing. When I took the jumpers into House of Fraser um, at the same time as the book, so, you know, I. I they had six cashmere jumpers and one of them was a really, really super soft cable knit that came in grey and in cream. And I'll give you a little tip. If you are buying cashmere, things that are cream and white will tend to be softer because the, the dyeing process actually makes the fabric a little bit harder. And it wears out over time. The lighter the fabric, the softer it is, the darker the fabric, the, the more hard wearing it will be. So she was, the, this woman at the time was... Um, holding and looking at the the cream one and then touching the grey one to see what the difference was and then she came back to the cream one. House of Fraser's had done an, an amazing thing for me. I was a, a very young designer. I had, you know, I'd worked um, 
as a press person with them. You know, I'd, I'd done their press shows and all that kind of stuff. So I had a really good relationship with the management team. So when they opened up their doors to me, um, they gave me a deal which meant they were only taking VAT off of me. So it was only 22% or whatever, which meant um, I passed that saving that I was getting back onto the customer, taking £100 off of each of the six jumpers. So they were £100 cheaper than they should have been. Now, when I say that that's not sustainable for a company like House of Fraser because they have electricity to pay, on, they have rates to pay, they have the building costs to pay and they have staff to pay. So they need to be making money off of the clothes that are being sold through the till. But anyway, I was only there for a, a short period selling a capsule um, and it was a, a you know for a much bigger thing that we were doing. But I was watching this woman and I like to be on the shop floor um, because it was, again, part of a process as being a fashion journalist that I'd never seen before. And I watched this woman flip the price tag over and literally bounce a foot off of the price tag. And I knew what that meant. I wasn't an idiot. And I approached her and I said, listen, I hope you don't think that this is weird. I'm actually the designer. Um, I, you know, I've, I've brought this company in. I've started it myself. I, I get the, the stuff made in Hoik. Um, and it took her through the story. And she said, no, I'm really aware of that. I was reading um, about it on the, on the swing tag. And she said, I love Scottish cashmere. Um, and I said, can I ask why you bounced off? And she said, it's just so expensive. It's just so expensive. You know, I would, and, and we started talking, we had a little bit of rapport. And she said, you know, I would spend that kind of money on a dress I would wear to a wedding. And then she burst out laughing before I even said anything and turned around to me and said, I cannot believe I just told you I would spend that on a dress that I'd probably wear once. But yeah, I'd wear that jumper over and over again, over how many years? And I, so I laughed and I said, I don't I don't know, but I would hope you would have it for, you know, a minimum of 10, and you know, up to the rest of your life if you take care of it and darn it if it gets moths and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's there's ways and means of, of protecting the longevity of a jumper. And she said, I cannot believe that I think like that. Now, she didn't buy the jumper because obviously if you don't have that kind of money, you're not investing in it. That's, that's a huge amount of money. But the thing that really struck me was that when um, visitors came in, so we had some people from America, we had some people from China, we had some people from Portugal, and I sold to some people in Australia too. Never once did they talk about the financial outlay. They just bought it. They completely got it. And it made me as a writer and a, and a fashion writer view our, our, our Britishness, you know, of how we view things and and what fashion means to us and how much it should cost and that was really really eye-opening for me it's interesting isn't it that woman understood what was involved she understood mm -hmm. and we talk about and i think you're right the more you talk about it there is there is a luxury in time and and you know you're not even talking about the time for that jumper to be created you're talking about centuries of experience mm. And that's something that, that we see across luxury products in Scotland. And we do have a disproportionate number of luxury products that yeah. come out of here that I'm sure we could link back to the water. But, you know, how long do our, do our whiskey sleep for? Exactly. Do you know, we sit and we wait for them for so long. And that's, that's something... That it's we, a minimum we, of 15 years, isn't it? Before yeah. you can call it, yeah, before you can call it a whiskey. So, yeah. And it sits in these barrels. And, you know, it's that's been responsible for the absolute spike in gins because 
new companies need something to bring money in whilst they get their whiskey ready. And then there's another type of time and luxury, isn't there, when you look at Scottish seafood? Yes. And that's actually very fast time in that actually by the time you sit down in Dubai to scallops that have come from Scotland or langoustine that have come from Scotland, maximum they have been out the water for eight or nine hours. Well, you were doing a TV show, weren't you? And you went up and did a taster up north with these guys on the Argyle Peninsula and yet they are out at four or five o'clock in the morning and by three o'clock that afternoon those that seafood is packed live it's still alive in water into crates and put on airplanes to go around the world so that's the other like you know where freshness is absolutely key and time is the enemy yes so there's all these things tied in in the incredible products that come out of Scotland that are sort of tied to our sort of water-based culture luxury to me has always equaled time and that was the biggest lesson coming out of the cashmere book and something that i didn't actually anticipate happening on the next podcast i'm going to be delving into our first mill and these people have woven for listen to this chanel Hermes, Dior and Yves Saint Laurent. It's Barry Netware. <laughs>